Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO podcast. I'm your host, Grant Belgard, and joining me today is John Chi, CEO and founder of Exceder. Exceder provides services to the biotech industry and more. So uh, with that, I'll hand it over to John and hear about your company, what you do. And I'd really like to hear about you know, what you've learned about the industry and what you've learned building out your own company. Thanks for having me, uh, Grant. Really looking forward to this. So Exceder, we're an equipment leasing company that solely focuses on the laboratory space. And what we're really trying to do here is enable researchers to secure the equipment they need at an affordable price so they can get their research done and reach their milestones faster. Um, And we also provide ongoing repair and maintenance coverage for the duration of the lease term. Exceder really was founded just kind of like scratch my own itch. In a former life, I was doing wet lab research 10 years ago. And really when I was in the lab, and this was at UC Berkeley, I was doing research and a lot of the pain points I felt revolved around equipment usage and equipment maintenance. More often than not, I felt like I was running up the hill to the flow core to run samples every day. And I figured like there's got to be I guess, a more efficient way to do this and an efficient use of time and you know capital. So from there, really spoke to our PIs, tried to get a feel of, you know, is it just a me problem or is this more broadly a kind of pain point that everyone in the, on campus was feeling? What we ended up finding was that this was a very common problem. You know, equipment would break down. You know, equipment is very expensive to procure maintain. Since then, you know, we really started off with a pilot run of what we do. So we do equipment leasing and repair and maintenance coverage for the set equipment uh, for the broader life sciences, really trying to alleviate these kind of like financial and operational pain points for those in the lab. And especially, you know, for the earlier stage ventures. And yeah, you know, we started off in the academic and government laboratory space, which we can get into more. That was a a baptism of fire, especially as an early early entrepreneur. But we participate a lot in uh, kind of supporting early stage ventures, biotech, pharma, uh, diagnostics, and really helping them get the equipment they need to do their research and also making sure that they're supported along the way. But yeah, that, that's kind of what we sought out to do and really have been doing it ever since then. You know, that's our thing. <laughs> So I find it really interesting that you started with universities and government, right? Because in many ways, they're more difficult institutions to sell to. Can you maybe talk a bit about that decision and kind of what challenges you faced as a new company? Hindsight is twenty twenty. I want to say this was a calculated go-to-market, but it was more along the lines of that was my immediate network and community having you know just participated doing research, you know, in my early career in academia. And so due to just the general proximity, kind of getting in touch with laboratories was not, it was much more difficult. So we were like, okay, well, this is our community. Maybe we can kind of give this a shot and see if we can get some buy-in from our, you know, our neighbors. And I don't know if I would recommend going to, you know, trying to go through the government procurement system as the initial go-to-market. But hopefully someone can learn from my mistakes and slam dunk it should they choose to do this. But as an early entrepreneur, really, I think going through the the UC system procurement, you know, we worked with like Lawrence Berkeley National Labs, uh, Lawrence Livermore, and really what the procurement 
taught us is we had to be very airtight in making sure the contractual language was, you know, amenable to the broader system. You know, they were gracious enough, realizing that we were young entrepreneurs fresh out of the lab. They, they would work with us and give us feedback on where they wanted to see things go. What that really ended up doing is it helped us hone our product from both a you know pricing standpoint, how do we structure these contracts so they're mutually beneficial for everyone, and just really showing us how we can or what we needed to do is get buy-in from numerous stakeholders. It's not just the end user in the lab. There's the finance department, there's the procurement department, there's legal. And so that really opened our eyes is not that there's one person that you need to appeal to. There's many, many parties. And I think it was really quite, it was like the baptism of fire, really. But you made it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very grateful that we made it. The In the very beginning, it's, there's a lot of existential anxiety when it comes to when you're young and trying to put up a bid and go through the procurement system. But I think those are probably the big lessons is, you know, really how to appeal and really support all stakeholders. And really, it helped us fine tune our product. And obviously, since then, we've branched out outside of the academic research, government research realm. And that when we did decide to go into for profit, there was a lot more polish to our product. Whereas if we did it inverse and we went directly into the for-profit sector first, you know, most early stage ventures don't have procurement departments, you know, let alone a full-time finance department, legal department. And I think we would have probably been a lot sloppier in putting out the minimum viable product. Whereas through this baptism of fire really honed our product and our offering. That's interesting. What were the biggest things that changed between your first sale and and, and how things operate now? There's a, a fair amount of things that have changed. The pricing strategy definitely changed. We realized one price does not fit every end user. Obviously, if you are a government institution or you're UC Berkeley, um, you should be getting very, very different pricing than an early stage venture. And then there's they should also get different pricing than a you know a large multinational and, and that's purely because of the dynamic of the entity and that's something that we learned the hard way because we took our first stab we're like let's see if this pricing works um and quite frankly we we're green at that time and you know when we went through procurement they're like hey like this is a little bit off mark but here try again and they were generous enough to give us that feedback and so that really helped us fine tune how we priced things appropriately for the end user based on the kind of quote unquote risk, because obviously we we provide leases, there's a credit risk component that we need to evaluate. So that really was honed through procurement. And then also it allowed us to put out more accurate proposals forth when we went to the for-profit. So it didn't completely seem unreasonable. We were somewhere within the ballpark. And obviously since then, We've gotten so many repetitions off it. We've worked with so many labs since then that it's a well-oiled machine that we know based on what the company's all about, what the equipment is, you know, what is the game plan, what is the science behind it. We can very much create a bespoke solution that is appropriate for the end user. So that's like a really big one that you know we're always trying to improve, but something that we really fine-tuned during our early days. And then the, the second component is 
the kind of repair and maintenance support throughout the lease that we provide. Our kind of flavor of equipment leasing is that we don't want to just be a financing solution to the lab where it just simply get the equipment in there and just make payments. We pride ourselves in supporting the end user throughout the term of the lease, making sure if there's any equipment damages, we make sure that it is back, is repaired and brought back up to spec as quickly as possible. Because I know when there's an equipment damage and you're in the middle of a mission critical assay, it can, and a milestone is coming up, it can become a pretty tenuous situation. So we do provide support for that. This one was especially with Lawrence Berkeley. We had to figure out what was the level of support that is required to keep a high-performing laboratory operational. So that was another learning experience. And obviously, all these like learned lessons we carried over to the for-profit sector. But yeah, I would say those two is like finding a way to create bespoke financial solutions for the end user that fits their needs and making sure that we provide the right level of operational support for the end user as well. So they can just not worry about the potential downages that might come up throughout the lease term. One risk of working with startups in a line of business like yours is startups not infrequently fail. How does that typically play out? Is it usually pretty clean? Have you ever had to you know, call the repo man? <laughs> how, does, how does that work? I would say we kind of do things differently over here. And you know, something that is different about us is that we're not a bank. If you're a bank, you're using depositors' accounts to let for loans and lending products. With that comes all kinds of regulatory requirements. You know, much like if you have a mortgage on a house, the bank is gonna use your house as collateral. They're the ones who have kind of a regulatory burden and they will definitely call the repo man in the case of non-compliance of the loan. Now, and then, you know, other leasing companies have different models and I won't speak for them, but more often than not, the way that leasing companies kind of, where do they get their capital to create these leases is they do the fund model where they would go raise uh, investments from limited partners, whether it be family offices, institutional like endowments, pensions, you name it, hedge funds, funds of funds. So they're using other people's capital as well. And when they use other people's capital, there's also going to be a requirement that you structure your credit facility. It might really require the repo man to go in and you know repossess. For us, what makes us a little bit different is that we don't use outside capital. We don't use depositors' accounts. We don't use LPs' capital. All of the capital comes off our balance sheet. Basically, we're underwriting and funding leases to the end user. And in the case of early stage ventures, we, we realize this. <laughs> we, we totally realize that it is a non-zero chance that things might not work out. And so we always, and obviously we need to make sure that we come to an amicable solution, but we pride ourselves in being long-term partners for these companies when things are good and when things are bad. We always pride ourselves in being able to find an amicable solution to make sure that you're taken care of and we're taken care of. When we sense that there's a cash crunch coming up, that we immediately send someone in and they repo the equipment. It's more of like, hey, let's have a conversation. Where are things at? Are you trying to get to your next funding round? Do you need help getting to that next funding round? How can we be helpful? And we want to give the breathing room to these early stage ventures so they can get there. Um, and that's our goal from the very beginning is the way we approach equipment leasing, the life sciences, is that there's kind of three components that are very, very important and critical to the success of these early stage ventures. It's making sure you have adequate cash runway, make sure that you can keep the lights on. Second, you need the equipment to run your assays and you need your expert staff 
to be able to run these assays. And if you have all three, you're in a good position to hopefully to hit your milestones. And we want to help get you there. We realize that one of the components is making sure you have cash runway. And we're not going to impose our will and prevent you from getting there. We're going to try and help you get there. And, and that's kind of our mentality around it. We, we take a very stakeholder approach, making sure the lab, the company is taken care of, the investors are taken care of, the equipment manufacturers and us. We realize there's a lot of parties involved. We take a holistic approach there, whereas it could be when, if you're using depositors accounts, it's a very different scenario because the federal government is going to uh, impose its will and, and make sure that you take care of that the depositor accounts in a very different way. Um, but we approach it from that angle. That's interesting. I mean, that's one thing I like to do at times too, right? Basically, we have a network of investors who are looking for deal flow. We work with early stage companies that periodically in this industry are going to need investment. So, you know, it's obviously not something that's formalized or anything like that, but it's interesting to hear you say that. I mean, I, I guess that's kind of a, maybe a bit of a common practice among those who kind of specialize in working with smaller companies, right? Because it makes sense for everyone. If the company is doing a good job, it's kind of in everyone's best interest to make sure they're funded adequately. Yeah. And I think the way we, we look at it too, is that great companies, even like the best companies out there will have ups and downs. Outside of biotech, Facebook had its ups and downs. Apple was on the brink of bankruptcy, right? And obviously, Facebook and Apple are what they are now. They're doing all right. <laughs> yeah, they're doing all right. We realize that just because there's a little bit of volatility, we're not spooked by that. And we want to help support you through that volatility and get you to that next place that you need to be. Um, whether it be the next funding round, help you get to your next milestone, you know, help you make that next hire. If you raise a, a seed round that's like two to six million and you have to spend like 1.5 million on equipment, that's 1.5 million that can no longer be allocated towards staffing. So remember, there's like those the three things we focus on is having adequate cash, having the equipment that you need, and staffing your company with the experts that will take you where you need to go. So we're trying to get you there. We want you to have all three. And so that's what we're really seeking to do is like make your dollars go farther and give you kind of that flexibility to hire. And it's a competitive hiring market too. So for these entrepreneurial scientists, it can be a lot to manage. We don't want to be a bottleneck on you and we don't want to be additional anxiety or stress. We want to be supportive throughout. So tell us about those early years, right? I mean, obviously, Exeter's grown to a pretty respectable size with a pretty good portfolio now. And of course, going from zero to one is always a challenge, especially, you know, you were starting in such a, in some ways, difficult market. How did you do it? You're exactly right. It was a very different time, especially for early stage life science. I think at that time, what we encountered was the kind of startup ecosystem was just beginning. Back then, a lot of the large multinationals had a very robust in-house R&D function. And that's kind of when we were starting. It was very difficult. Back then, this, this you know, kind of SaaS wave hadn't really picked up quite yet. So when it came to getting the company off the ground, we didn't have all these tools to do normal business functions. Like Gusto didn't exist yet. Email marketing was very nascent. All of these things that make the barriers to entry much lower did not exist at that time. So it was a lot of like elbow grease. 
Well, admittedly, at that time, I wasn't quite sure if the timing was wrong or did I get into an industry that was this the wrong industry to be in? I think that's something all entrepreneurs ask themselves <laughs> in the early days. Yeah, it very much. There was a lot of existential dread very early because, like I said, the SaaS tools that enables entrepreneurs now weren't available. So a lot of it was old fashioned, just like me either making calls or going in person and trying to meet potential clients. And you can imagine it is difficult, um, especially for folks in the lab. There's like, I don't want to talk. I have my own work to do. In the very beginning, there's a lot of that sweat equity that needs to go in. But then something that we think about a lot is just like those early clients that were willing to give us a shot really helped us get into that rhythm. It took a little bit of time to figure out the first couple clients that would help propel us to the next level. Where did your starting capital come from? So the starting capital was actually from friends and family. We don't have outside kind of like institutional equity in our company. So our company is 100% employee owned. There's like a small sliver of friends and family that when no one was willing to make that investment, we still don't have outside equity, but the friends and family were willing to make that bet. And then the rest are owned by the employees. And so, you know, you can imagine it kind of like compounded the stress because it's it's your friends and family's money and they're betting on you. So that was very anxiety inducing. I will say me personally, I'm not like a the serial entrepreneur type. I look back then at those early days and I was just... A nervous wreck. <laughs> yeah, sleepless nights, nervous wreck. I mean, is this the right market? Wrong timing? What is this? But I think it always ended up going back to my experience in the lab at Berkeley, just seeing the, the research being done. I feel like whether it was conscious or subconscious, I was like, this is going somewhere. Seeing the research being done led me to be optimistic about the industry. And so a lot of the time, it was a matter of sticking to it, making sure that we raise awareness. And when the biotech market does have its moment, we are prepared. And so like I mentioned before, when we first started, the industry was very different. Multinationals had their own in-house R&D. You know, the IPO market was not nearly as hot. Obviously, M&A was not as hot because all the multinationals had their own R&D going on. And then there was this kind of like paradigm shift where the larger enterprises, they reduced the in-house R&D, um, realizing that from a capital allocation perspective, it might be a better investment to let the startups focus on more high-risk projects. Let someone else take the risk and buy it when it's a bit more proven out. Yeah, exactly. And you know that had ripple effects everywhere because once that started happening, the venture community was able to say, hey, like our investments are de-risked because at the end of the day, VCs need to have a liquidity event, an exit, you know, whether it be an IPO, merger acquisition, whatever. And when this happened, it was like, okay, you know, the big strategics are now looking to acquire these smaller entities who are doing more kind of risky research. Once that happened, the capital inflows to the startup community really started coming in. And we saw, you know, more and more entrepreneurial scientists take that leap. Because you know, back then it was like it was super risky. It was like, are you going to leave your job at Pfizer to start a startup that may or may not have an opportunity to IPO or or get acquired? And then you know, you look at clinical trials. You're like, oh my goodness, it is so expensive. We had a lot of existential dread. Is the timing wrong? Is the industry wrong? But once that shift happened, we were kind of 
You're well poised. <laughs> yeah, well poised to be supportive in that growth. There was a, a large component of luck. It could have gone very differently. That paradigm shift could have just not happened. But you know, very grateful that it did. And I think it was kind of the testing grounds. Like during those early days, going through government research, academic research, we kind of were just like practicing, honing, like honing the craft, getting better. And then when that paradigm shift happened, we're like, okay, we're ready for the prime time. Let's do this now. I wish I had better advice on how to get from zero to one. But I think if you have deep conviction on your thesis, at least in my case, it would behoove you to stick around long enough for the adoption to happen. If the thesis is like you believe to be rock solid, I would recommend sticking it out and trying to be well poised for when when things really do pick up. Right now, obviously the past year has been the past year. And that's another paradigm shift that's kind of like happening. Who could see it coming? But um, you know, it kind of accelerated all kinds of like trends um and pulled forward things that would have taken five, 10 years to actually come to fruition. It's things like that. It's just like making sure you're building for resilience and be well poised for when the opportunity presents itself to action on it. And did those inflection points correspond to major changes to the composition of your team? It did. The overall product, it's been fine-tuned, but there hasn't been you know seismic shifts in what we do. But when there were the paradigm shifts, it kind of was like drinking out of a fire hose. When you're at that stage, there's kind of, as they call it, like technical debt. You kind of hack things together. And it works for, you know, maybe when you're like a team of two, three, you can like Frankenstein together these like Google Sheets, Excel Sheets, and it works for a little bit. But eventually, like all debt, you eventually need to pay it down. When the paradigm shift happened, we were scaling up the sales team to kind of, you know, make sure that we can give each of the laboratories the attention they deserve. We really need to, one, improve the processes, the tech stack, making sure that we we don't break underneath the paradigm shift. We try to be as proactive as we can about it. We want to be more proactive, less reactionary. As an entrepreneur, it is our job to kind of see around the curve and kind of prepare for it. You're not going to be able to catch everything, but we try our best to do that. The first paradigm shift is like really just like scaling the sales function. But the next shift was just making sure that no one falls through the cracks. There's a lot of parties that we're managing, making sure we're taking care of our vendors, the manufacturers, making sure all internal parties are taken care of and not losing track of those conversations. So we had, again, revamped the customer success function um, and the operations function. Not that it wasn't working before. It's just that when you go through these growth spurts, um, your existing systems were not built for that. Well, I guess one of the advantages of bootstrapping is you, in some ways, have time to tool up, to be at the right stage for the size your company's at, and to ensure you know other kind of managers of the company and so on can grow into their roles as opposed to you know the size and the structure of a, the division that you're directing or something. It, it becomes qualitatively different every year, right? Can you maybe maybe comment a bit on how has that been for you, right? Obviously, Exceder's come a long way over the last decade, and I, I'm sure you've come a long way over the last decade. Other than kind of school of hard knocks, how have you tooled up? In the early days, there was, again, kind of like I mentioned, a lot of sweat equity that went into it. But you can't do that forever. You can't like work every single day and not have time for friends, family, loved ones, hobbies. You know, You can't do that forever. 
and it's kind of what you alluded to as kind of like bootstrapping this company. We have the luxury of we can take our time a little bit more. High growth companies, different kind of schema that you need to live by. You're looking to triple, triple, double, double. You don't really have that luxury to have that balance. I'll only speak for Exceder here. But what I've learned is that building in balance into your work life. And I try to have our team also have this balance um, enables them to really come into work refreshed and to be able to do their best work and not feel completely burnt out. And especially during remote work, that becomes even more difficult when there's like not clear separation between work and personal space. Yeah. I don't know if you saw this recent study. I, I thought it was fascinating. I was reporting people were working, you know, more than ever before with this shift to remote work, you know, a couple hours more a day. Well, at the same time, becoming less productive, even overall, not just productivity per hour, because so much of that extra time was soaked up by meetings and agonizing over emails and things like this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did see that. Like we, we do a lot of team check-ins, making sure like, how is the remote work panning out? you? Do you find that you're filling that space with more unproductive work? What we ended up coming to is we definitely try to have clear cutoffs. Like when, when work is over, please, I do not want to see your green bubble on. Please go gray. Go spend time away from your computer and things like that. And yes, remote work has removed the commute component, obviously. You have an hour probably more in the morning and an hour probably at the end of the day, we try not to just fill that space because we can. We try to say, hey, with those extra hours in your day, can you spend more time with your kids? Go see your friends, get exercise, go for a hike. These kind of things, they're not directly work productive, but it's a sustainable practice and helps you know the team come back, like I said, refreshed and actually more productive. So we don't want to just, because you freed up this one hour in the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, we don't want you to just like go into more meetings. So we try to keep the hours the same, but give you that extra hour to do more things that are personal priorities of yours. And that's what we have found has kept the burnout at bay, especially for the remote work situation. So I see we're coming up on time soon. So I, I, I want to make sure we uh, have an opportunity to Here's some advice you might have for others. And, and especially, you know, I'd be keen to hear, you know, what's a contrarian view that you hold? When it comes to advice coming from a STEM background, there's a large, large emphasis on like specializing, specializing, specializing. But before I was in the wet lab, I actually took a lot of classes on business, a lot of like legal classes too, and philosophy classes. Did you have kind of a Steve Jobs calligraphy application? Yeah, yeah. And not to sound cliche, but like one of the most impactful classes I actually took in school was actually a philosophy class on moral ethics. And without getting into the weeds of it, it's been a long time and the philosophers out there might you know catch me on this, but... There's kind of a utilitarian philosophy where, you know, cost benefit, that kind of calculus is kind of what defines a, a moral life or decision. And then there's kind of like on the other end, there's like the Kantian moral philosophy where there are binary rights and wrong based on whether or not you're treating others with dignity. And if anyone watched The Good Place, that, that's kind of one of the shows that kind of gives a little primer on that. What I'm getting at is that taking a kind of well-rounded not just the STEM path, course load informed how we built Exceder. And I think it's what has made us in our DNA different. Like I said, we, we always try to treat every single stakeholder that we work with 
with dignity and not just focus on shareholder value on its own at the expense of others. And that's a very utilitarian thing is like, if we cost benefit analyze profit maximize, that's the right decision. You know, if I had strictly stuck to the STEM course load, I don't think Exceder would be the way it is today. When it comes to like a leasing company, there is a way to do it. And I think coming from a different angle with a kind of like the science background, just having taken this diverse course load really helped us build what I would like to believe is a unique organization that approaches the life science community in a different way. And we offer a product that is differentiated and beneficial to all parties. So what I would say is specializing is obviously important, but don't feel like it's wasted time exploring different fields of study, because I think it can inform where you want to go as an entrepreneur um, and how your company can be built differently and approach problems from different angles. What's the worst piece of advice you've received on this journey? One of the early pieces of advice that was given me is that if you want to secure a customer and that customer requires 100 cold calls, so how many customers do we want to secure? Do we need 10 customers? We need to do 10 times 100 cold calls. That kind of mentality of it's purely a grind and grit. Basically, the advice was giving me like hustle harder. And I think that was kind of one of the worst pieces of advice for me because I think you can be working smarter. And so early on, that's what I was doing. I was like, I need to cold call this many people and I need to get into laboratories that get FaceTime with this many people in order to secure X amount of customers. Yeah. So that's probably the worst piece of advice is like hustle harder because that's the only solution there is. Um, but I think there are more effective ways than just the status quo. It's great advice. You know, I think we've discovered similar things along the along the way. Yeah, so thank you so much, John, for joining us. It was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you for having me, Grant. I really appreciate you having me on.